today on Ag News Daily. We've also been we've been working in, in with the Soil Health Institute on looking at the economics of soil health. So we're we're one year into a, a two year study with them uh, that will be available next summer that we're super excited about. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy. Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Selene Howell joined by Ashton Carr. Well, Ashton, it is Wednesday, right? Yes, it is. It feels like Friday to me, so I keep messing up. But yes, it is Wednesday. Okay. I was just making sure. I couldn't decide what day I felt like it feels like, but it is also actually definitely a report day today. And I think actually, Ashton, we should probably start with this news because it was a huge market mover today. Let's do it. So, of course, we had the USDA quarterly grain stocks report that was released at 11 a.m. Central Time today, and it had big moves, big implications today on both corn and soybeans. Corn put in a new contract high in the December contract. Soybeans at one point, I think the highest I saw them trade on the board today was 36 or 38 cents higher. So they had huge moves. But really, when you look at the synopsis of this report, there were a couple of big things that stuck out to me and definitely stuck out to the market. So the first of which we saw old crop corn stocks as of the beginning of September are 10% lower than September 1st of 2019. We saw both commercial and on-farm storage and stocks drop 8% in the corn markets. But really, the big winner, if you want to give winners and losers here was the soybean markets because we saw old crop stocks drop 523 million bushels, which was a 42% decline compared to last year. Yes, 42% decline when you look at old crop stocks. Again, on-farm stocks for soybeans dropped 47% and commercial storage off-farm stocks dropped 41%. So Big, big drops there. We also saw USDA adjusted and included this in their in their report today. They adjusted final acreage yield and production revisions for the 2019 crop. So we saw U.S. corn production for 2019 revised up 2.67 million bushels. And so that was on the corn side of things. If you want to give a winner and losers bracket for today, I suppose you'd put soybeans in the winners bracket side of things, Ashton, because they had some huge drops in old crop stocks. We saw 523 million bushels being dropped off the old crops balance sheet, a decline of 42% compared to last year. Yes, 42%. When we look at on-farm and off-farm storage, again, big drops there as well. We saw on-farm stocks down 47% from last year and off-farm or commercial stocks down 41%. And so the other thing that is notable from this report today was that they also included, again, revisions for acreage yield and production for the 2019 crop. So they put U.S. corn production for 2019 revised up 2.67 million bushels and U.S. soybean production is revised down 333,000 bushels from the previous estimate. So that's part of the reason they adjusted old crop stocks, especially in soybeans, so drastically. They also noted that we're seeing an increased demand in feed use and, of course, increased exports as of late. So very, very friendless friendly report overall, and the markets were very excited by this news today. 
I've seen a lot of folks that were excited about this report, talking about it on social media. And I expect that we talk about it on Monday with our hashtag market Monday conversation. But another thing that I've been seeing a lot of people talk about is, of course, Bayer's ExtendFlex soybean technology being approved by the European Union. And it, of course, includes that tolerance to glufosinate, glyphosate, and dicamba, meaning growers will be able to use it in 2021. But a University of Wisconsin soybean researcher, Sean Conley, says, while it's good to have another weed control option, he still has concerns. And I have a quote here from Sean saying, obviously, it gives us another tool to utilize given what we've seen with the glyphosate resistance. I'm a little concerned, though. We need to get the word on the EPA ruling on dicamba. Otherwise, it's just going to be putting too much pressure on glufosinate, and that's all they will be able to spray. And Bayer has said that they do not expect the EPA to re-register their Extendamax dicamba herbicide for 2021 use sometime this fall. And those Extendamax, or not Extendamax, but those Extendflex beans will be launched in the U.S. and Canada, of course, next year. Yeah, I have a little bit of additional clarity to add to this as well. I'm glad you brought this up, Ashton. Um, But we also saw Administrator Wheeler said that they're continuing to review these different registrations of dicamba, and they're anticipating to have a decision on whether or not growers will be able to use these chemicals by mid-October. He said this is the timeline they're shooting for here to give growers ample time to make those decisions regarding both chemical and seed purchases for the 2021 growing season. So seems like the administration has been pretty pushed pretty hard here to come up with a decision and we will find that out hopefully here come you know just a few weeks it's hard to believe that tomorrow is October 1st already it certainly is really hard for me to think that October 1st is just tomorrow it time has just absolutely flown by but one thing that I want to bring to to your attention, Delaney, is the Heroes Act 2.0, which was introduced by the House this week, and three of the new agriculture provisions relate to meat and poultry. The Heroes Act 2.0 provides more than $1 billion to assist contract growers of poultry and livestock growers who face losses because of reduced placements related to COVID-19. It provides grants to improve meat and poultry facilities to allow for interstate shipment, and it requires a report on the structure and availability of U.S. meat and poultry processing, including ways to increase processing capacity. And there was supposed to be a meeting today with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and House Speaker Pelosi to discuss more about the HEROES Act 2.0, and I suspect that they talked a little bit more about assistance to to agriculture and, and other businesses and industries that are hurting right now. But Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said in an event sponsored by CNBC that he's hopeful about the prospects of a deal. So it's, you know, I guess some more encouraging news about assistance going out to our farmers and ranchers. And there was more provisions that had to do with dairy and nutrition and specialty crops and other commodities and a few other things. But those those three provisions relating to livestock and poultry or meat and poultry was really what piqued my interest today. Yeah, Ashton, they also, Secretary Mnuchin and, and 
Pelosi also spent some time today discussing the budget because, as we know, the Senate has today to clear a resolution to keep the government funded until December 31st. And this resolution that they are voting on today also will replenish the USDA's CCC fund. So the Senate voted to advance the measure on Tuesday with a stopgap spending bill. And uh, we will continue to watch that and make sure that it does, in fact, go through the resolution to keep the government funded. Absolutely, Delaney. But other than that, I'm not watching any other news stories for today. What about you? Let's see. Oh, okay. This is a fun piece of news. Since tomorrow is October 1st, it is also a very special month for our pork producing friends. It is pork month. And... uh, I believe multiple states are doing this, um, including Iowa, but they're doing the hashtag Porktober20 for you to share on social media all of the different pork products that you'll be consuming. And if you are a pork producer or you're out there visiting a pork producer, uh, you can use that hashtag Porktober20 to share what's going on in your neck of the woods. Well, Delaney, I have some pork chops in my fridge that I actually need to cook. So I guess I'll just wait and do that to kick off Porktober. Yum. That sounds like, a, sounds like a good idea. I wish you lived closer. I'd come over for dinner. <laughs> One other thing that I will point out, speaking of, you know, national holidays or not national holidays, but, you know, months and stuff related to, to celebrating. But today is actually National Podcast Day. Oh, international or national. I can't remember, but happy podcast day. (laughs) Happy podcast day. Fantastic. Well, it was also a happy day in the markets. So what do you say, Ashton? Should we uh, get right to it? Let's do it. Well, as I mentioned earlier, markets were explosive today, reacting on a very bullish quarterly grain stocks report. Corn, I believe, the highest it traded on the session. I didn't watch it the entire time, but uh, post-report, it was got up as much as, I believe, 16 cents was the highest I saw it trade for the day. Again, put in a new contract high for the December contract and still ended the day in very positive territory with the December contract adding 14 and a quarter cent to close at 379 even while the March added 14 and a quarter as well to close at 388 and a quarter. Soybeans, again, huge moves today. Didn't come close to the limits, but uh, definitely had some sparks fly as the November contract added 30 and a half cents to close at 1023 and a half. The January adding 30 and a quarter cent to close at 1027 and a quarter. We'd also rallied today on news of corn and soybean excitement with the December contract adding 28 and a half cents to close at 578 even the March up 27 and a quarter cent to close at 583 and three quarters. In the livestock pits, they unfortunately did not have a fantastic today as the October live cattle contract shed 35 cents to close at 108.55. The December down 77 and a half cents to close at 112.35. In the feeder cattle pits, the October contract losing a dollar fifty-seven to close at one forty-one thirty-five. The November down a dollar seventy-two and a half to close at one forty-two oh five. In the lean hog pits, green across the screen is the October contract added forty-two and a half cents to close at seventy-two eighty. The December up a dollar twelve to close at sixty-three ten. And in the class three dairy milk futures. We saw the strength continue as the October contract added 26 cents to close at 19.53. November added just a dime to close at 18.63. Without further ado, Ashton, remind our listeners who we're chatting with for today's conversation. 
Today, we are talking to Ryan Ciroli, who is the Sustainability Director of Row Crops at Cargill. Today on the podcast, we have Ryan Ciroli, who is the Cargill Sustainability Director for Row Crops. And here on Ag News Daily, for the past few weeks now, every now and then, we've been talking a little bit more and more about regenerative agriculture. So Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to talk about Cargill's efforts to increase sustainability. Thanks for having me. So my first question is really just a basic look at what these efforts are going to look like because Cargill is trying to advance regenerative agriculture practices by 2030 across 10 million acres in North America. So Ryan, why don't you tell us about that project? Sure. Um, you know, we regenerative agriculture is a system. And uh, I think at the, at the, foundation of regenerative ag um, is, is soil health. And, and so we see a tremendous opportunity to, to look at sort of those principles of soil health, like uh, reducing tillage or um, uh, looking at things like in, incorporating cover crops, uh, more diverse crop rotations. Um, and, and we see this as a, a kind of a tremendous opportunity to drive real impact through agriculture. Um, see it as a win-win, right? That ultimately ties together um, you know, the, the benefits for farmers. So we see a really strong economic proposition for farmers in the long run as we drive productivity um, and think about, you know, can we use uh, either um, optimize inputs or use fewer inputs um, and, and think about how do you drive more, you know, margin um, and, and more opportunity while at the same time being able to deliver, you know, kind of against environmental benefits. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's where we're focused on it, right? We see it, we see an opportunity to scale it up and, and, and support, you know, farmers at, at, at scale and uh, in the commodity space. I definitely think this is a conversation that we really need to be having. And I'm seeing more and more companies really try to get to net carbon zero or, or do something with regenerative agriculture and sustainability. And that being said, there's so much research that's coming forth. So really, where did you guys go to get this research and really develop your plan for, for this regenerative agriculture practice? Yeah, so I think there's um, there's a tremendous amount of interest in this space, and and specifically, I think when when you look at at, at soil health and the opportunity with it, um, and so there's again, I think a lot of great work that's been going on for a long time through the, the universities, um, but also through you know some of the NGOs or or other organizations like the Soil Health Institute, um, the Nature Conservancy uh, that that we we partner with. Um, and and I think just informing just what is the science behind uh, you know uh, the the benefits of soil health? How do we understand um, you know benefits such as improving water holding capacity for farmers or um, of, of soils, right? So how do we become more drought resilient um, or help with things like better nutrient management uh, through the process? Um, and 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 I think there's a there's a great amount of effort. Um, we've also been, we've been working on, and with the Soil Health Institute on looking at the economics of soil health. So we're, we're one year into a, a two year, uh, study with them, uh, that will be available next summer that we're super excited about, but, but really helping to understand, you know, when you adopt, uh, the different principles of, of, of soil health, then, then, then how does it really drive that long-term economics and, and, and prosperity for farmers in the process. So excited about that as well. 
Ryan, it certainly sounds very exciting, but one thing that I was definitely interested in when looking into Cargill's efforts is your focus on row crops and you're the sustainability director for row crops. So why was that what you guys were really focusing on? Why not other crops or other commodities or anything like that? Great question. And and it's um we have a couple of different approaches, right? So one through our, our protein business, looking at things like uh, our, our beef up sustainability project, looking at, at, at beef production and ranching and uh, grazing. Um, and then on the row crop side for us, we just, we have such a big footprint in um, working in crops like corn and wheat, and soybeans, canola uh, around the world that um, there's a huge area for impact. But, but when you look at just the sheer number of acres um, that are, that, around the world that are grown um, uh, of corn, of wheat, of soy in particular, um, there's this awesome opportunity to drive, again, real impact. Um, and since so many farmers on so many acres uh, are, are growing these crops, um, we, we have the opportunity to, to drive that real influence, right? So so again, helping farmers, supporting farmers um, with with the type of work, you know crops that they're growing, um, but at the same time, also having the ability to, to, to drive some real impact in, from an environmental standpoint. I was curious, when you look at working with specifically row crop farmers, what kinds of regenerative practices are you trying to implement and how do you go about getting that happening at a local or a grassroots level? Yeah, so I think we're um, we're really looking at advancing the, the five soil health principles. So things like keeping the soil covered, uh, reducing or eliminating tillage, um, you know, keeping living roots in the soil and increasing crop diversity. So, so you know, strong emphasis around around tillage, around uh, potentially different, you know, uh, starting to work with cover crops. Um, also thinking about potentially different uh, crop rotations where where it works. Recognizing that there are a lot of challenges, right? Every farm is different. Every region is different. Um, I live in Minnesota, and you know we have a short growing season. We have you know heavy wet soils, um, and so so there's there's not a silver bullet. And, and so it's about understanding where are farmers starting from and then where are those opportunities for them to advance some of these different principles. Um, and we think that, you know, on every farmer in every region, there's an opportunity. It's just about making sure that we can, we can um, identify what they are and overcome them. Ultimately, that kind of takes us to, I think there's two key barriers that have, you know, maybe holding back, um, you know, greater adoption or more advancement. I think one is around just kind of that, education or, or um, really technical support or agronomic support. So understanding what works on my farm, what works in my region, um, you know, and, and do I have the right support to be able to take that step? Or if I've already adopted, you know, a few steps, how do you take the next one? So really focusing in on, 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 on that element and making sure, do we have the right partners? Do we have the right, um, you know, can farmers access that help when they want it and as they need it? I think the other piece then is, yeah, so that's a that's a key element uh, around that, um, as well as I, I think understanding the uh, market access, right? Or you know, essentially, what are the incentives, or how do we help uh, de-risk that adoption, or or create some financial incentives to you know encourage or, or support farmers as they kind of journey into uh, or journey along further along soil health. And Ryan, I'm curious, what made Cargill want to get involved in this space? I mean they're a big name in the industry. We're seeing a lot of other big name companies get involved in this space, but I'm just curious to see why you guys decided to hop in. 
Yeah. So as, you know, as a, as a large agribusiness and, and food company, um, you know, I think we, we're looking to have a really resilient agriculture sector. Right. Um, and, and ultimately, um, you know, a, a good friend of mine always says, you know, how do we keep farmers farming? Right. And how do we, how do we create a more resilient sector? Um, and, and I think that's what this is about, right. It's about how do we, um, you know, in large part, we see farmers as our customers, right. They, they choose to work with us every day or sell to us. Um, and, and so how do we make sure we're supporting them and how do we make sure we're supporting efforts that, that really are farmer centric? Um, and if we're successful, um, or as we're successful doing this, um, we also know that we can generate, you know, all these other benefits, right. These stack benefits of, you know, water quality improvements or reducing greenhouse gas emissions or improving biodiversity. And so if, 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 if this is a win for farmers and if we can support them in their journey, um, it's also a win for, you know, the, the supply chains we work in, the, um, you know, the customers, the communities we work in, and, and it's, it's about putting it all together. You know, Ryan, I, there, there's really not a doubt in my mind that you, you guys are really trying to help farmers from, from the way that you talk about your relationships with them. It, uh, it gives, like, warms my heart a little bit. So how has your relationship with farmers in, in this been different from the way that your relationship with farmers have been in the past? Are you having to talk to them differently or reach out to them in different ways with this regenerative agriculture practice than you have before? Um, so I think we, you know, we've, we've had long-term relationships, right? We, so we've worked directly with farmers for um, a really long time. Um, and I think it's been, um, we've had a really positive reaction um, as we've rolled out things like um, supported programs, like the, the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund. Um, so where, you know, farmers can literally generate, you know, uh, incentive payments for adopting soil health for the outcomes, right? So the water quality improvements or the economics. And um, and I think farmers have said, wow, this is great because you're, you're actually not just telling us to do something, but rather saying, how do you support us in systems that, that benefit us in the long run? And I think there's a tremendous opportunity um, for, for all of us, right? Well beyond Cargill. Um, you know, I think all of our, our customers and our partners and our competitors, right, is as we focus in here um, and to focus on the power of agriculture, right, and the opportunity that agriculture has to not only feed and fuel and clothe the world, but but do it in a way that also can dramatically reduce our impact. And, and you know, and so it's been well-received, right? I, I'd say, um, you know, we have a lot of positive response from farmers as they understand what it is we're trying to do, right, and, and how do we work with them and meet them where they are um, as we advance different programs. This is really exciting stuff, Ryan. We certainly appreciate you coming on and chatting with us today. And for farmers or folks that want to learn more information about the new practices and programs that Cargill is working to implement, is there a resource or anywhere online that folks can go to check out more information? Sure. So I would, you know, I'd start with working with, um, you know, in your area, um, you know, reach out to your, the, the Cargill representatives that are, you know, potentially, you know, buying grain from you or, 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 or uh, in the region. Um, and I think as, as we um, roll out more programs, so we're just getting started, but as, as we, you know, kind of scale this up and, and, and have more programs available um, throughout all of the regions in which we operate um, to make sure that we're, you know, communicating that and being public about it so farmers know how to, to reach us. But um, that's a good way to start, a good place to start. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thanks again for joining us today.
And thanks again for having me. Um, so glad we can talk about this and I uh, appreciate the opportunity. A big thank you again to Ryan for coming on the podcast today. And like I said in the interview, we've really been talking a whole lot about regenerative agriculture recently. And Cargill is one of the big companies that we are seeing come out and make an effort to do something about sustainability. And so I definitely want to keep my eye out on their project and see how that comes along. Yeah, I think this is going to be interesting to see how I'm quite curious to see how growers react to this, you know, a big name player stepping in and you know, I'm not even going to share my opinion on this. I think a lot of growers already share their own. But if you have thoughts to share on this, you know, big name companies like Cargill stepping in and getting involved in this type of space, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. You can hit us up at Ag News Daily, or you can always shoot me a personal Twitter message at Delaney Howell 07. With that, Ashton, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.